0: Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new con gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
2: there and welcome to our show the shit no one tells you about writing i'm bianca Murray, and i'm joined by carly waters and cc lira from ps literary agency we'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual books with hooks segment after which we'll go to today's guest
0: hello everyone welcome to another segment of books with hooks it is your co-host carly waters today and i'm going to let cc go first today so cc will you read us your query letter
1: let's do this dear bianca carly and cc y'all are truly the shit and i'll leave it at that in the name of brevity i'm submitting to both carly and cc because you're both incredible teachers Passionate advocates and brilliant craftswomen, so please don't make me choose. Redacted is an 80,000 word historical romance set in the Republic of Texas in 1839, told from the first person perspective of the female protagonist. It will appeal to fans of the fierce women in vibrant settings in Netflix's Godless, the forbidden love story of The Last of the Mohicans, and the Indigenous highlights in Amy Harmon's Where the Lost Wander. Marion blames herself for the death of her mother in childbed and has been walking through life blindly ever since. After nearly betrothing herself to the abhorrent settler next door, she's at a new low. That is until her childhood Lipan Apache friend, Naui, rides back into her life with an offer to accompany him to his rancheria and train in midwifery with his sister. Desperate to undo the past and spend more time with the man she's always wanted but could never have, Marion embarks on a path of learning that will alter her life and her assumptions of womanhood. But as knowledge grows, so does forbidden love. While political pressures are mounting on the Lippin, who don't trust the Makani, whites, and the Comanche are beating down on them from the north, the lovers secure their bond. But before they can be united, Marion's scorned neighbor returns, forcing them to embark on one last treacherous journey together. There is no end to what Marion will do to keep Naui, but will it be enough to save them both? I'm a native Texan whose ancestors have lived here since the early 1800s. Many of the characters in this novel are loosely based on my family. I grew up in Apache shores across from Comanche Peak and yearn to tell our history complete with all the peoples who were here rather than just the white man's story. I've spoken with and been guided by the Lippin Apache tribe of Texas in my extensive research. I have a bachelor's degree in social work and I'm a member of the Writers League of Texas and multiple critique groups. Thank you for your time and consideration. May I send you the complete manuscript? Sincerely, Erin, last name redacted.
0: Thank you, Cece. And how many words was that one?
1: This one came in at 369 words.
0: And what was your take?
1: Okay, my take. So really love the beginning, uh, leaving it at the name of brevity. And thank you for your kind words. Plot paragraphs, right? Everyone knows this is what I obsess about. So I get the setup, the story setup, which is so important for tension, conflict, and stakes is very, very clear here. I'm less clear on the escalating plot after she leaves with him. Like after that, there's kind of vague language. Here's an example, embarks on a path of learning that will alter her life and assumptions of womanhood. I don't know what that means. And I'd really like to know the plot as it pertains to her because I'm excited to know. It's, it's a really interesting premise. And I like that you're telling this through her single point of view, because it feels like this is the kind of novel where I have to really immerse myself in one person's psyche. I'm thinking of Hang the Moon by Jeanette Walls, which was also one person, like one POV, even though it had so many characters. And that was really well done. Another example of something that's a bit vague and I'd like it to be reframed is forcing them to embark on one last treacherous journey together. Like, again, I don't quite, I don't, I can't see it, right? Like I can feel the neighborhood that we're in, like treachery journey, but I can't see it with specificity and I'd like that. There is a lot of specificity, like I said, in the setup, and there's actually great specificity in the backdrop, which is really important for historical fiction. That is something that a lot of people aren't able to fit into a query letter and you did, so great job. I just think that we should do it a little bit more when it comes to the plot. So those two sentences that I read out loud and that I highlighted for you in your pages, I would just tweak them to make them more specific.
0: Awesome, thank you, Cece. Now give us a little roundup of what happened in those opening pages.
1: So our protagonist is in the kitchen making bread when she hears bells and bells can signal different things depending on how many. And she's at first unsure whether it's danger or good news. And then it actually is the bell for good news. The men are returning and she races to see her cousin when she realizes that her neighbor, the one who proposed to her, might actually also be back. And she hasn't replied to his proposal yet, although it's for sure a no. And she's kind of dreading having to see him and kind of hopes that maybe he hasn't come back, which is an uncharitable thought by her own admission. But she still thinks it. And then she sees Nawi, who she loves. We we hear the news from the men who arrived. The men talking to Papa, and Papa talking to them about how they what they need. And the men say they need wagons. And the protagonist actually offers a solution to that. But for the most part, she's listening.
0: And what is your analysis of those pages?
1: There's a lot that is working. And I want to say that when it comes to historical fiction, usually the main challenge is weaving in the world in a way that feels natural, because the protagonists can't be thinking about their world too much and yet still have the story move at a good pace so a hundred percent this is like the number one challenge when it comes to this genre in terms of submissions i get and yet this is the thing that this writer totally nailed right like she did it seamlessly like i never for even one second felt that it was forced or unnatural, like she is inhabiting a different world, totally different world. And I was like, yep, I totally buy it. There was one moment that she used an expression dragging my feet that I believe that expression wasn't around in the 1800s. But this isn't something I've ever fact checked. It's something I have once heard from a creative writing instructor. So I'll leave it to you to fact check this. But honestly, in terms of like the protagonist inhabiting the world, such a great job. I also really like that um, we were always in scene. So that's really great one thing I think needs work is her interiority as it pertains to the neighbor. So I really like that you have her thinking, oh, maybe he wouldn't come back and then kind of chiding herself on the thought because that's human, right? Like it shows her ethics. It shows her values that she would chide herself. But at the same time, it shows her humanity that she would think it. But it's framed in a way before, before this thought, she thinks to herself, why hadn't I answered him months ago before he'd left? And I don't believe that this would be the first time she was asking herself this. She's had months to think it over. So I'd reframe this, either tell us the reason, maybe she was a people pleaser, maybe her mom had just died and she was feeling alone, she was in a vulnerable spot. I mean, I don't know what the reason is. Or make it so that she's asking herself this question for the millionth time. It can be a small tweak. There were so many moments where I felt like this world was really coming to life and I really appreciated it. I do wonder if when it comes to this place where you're starting, if it's the right spot, because at first I thought it was because we were in the kitchen and I was inhabiting the world and I was getting all these, these great nuggets and there was the bell ringing. But then when the, when the men arrived, she's really just listening passively. So I do one of two things, either really up her interiority during the dialogue, right? Like making it centered on her, making sure that it's, it's, it's really all about tethering it to her perspective, or I would start in a different place because right now the entry point is more focused on the big picture events than her life. And that makes it tough to connect with character. Again, not talking about the very, very beginning. because It started off strong, great interiority, curiosity induced inducing elements but then it became about the battle the logistics the need of the wagons and I was thinking to myself I'm not sure that I want to be hearing about this in the first five pages just because there's no context for me and I, her thoughts aren't coming alive so I don't know I, I almost wonder if I can't believe I'm saying this, but if a prologue might make sense, I, again, I'm, I keep thinking about Hang the Moon, maybe because it's the last historical novel I read. But with that, the prologue of how she put her her brother in harm's way is, is the entry point to the story. So maybe something like that, like her origin story, like what made her, her? Maybe you could think of something like that. In Jeanette Walls' novels, she was, you know, fearless and a, a daredevil, and it was, potentially hurting her brother that totally changed the course of her life and so if she has a moment like that maybe that could be a good starting point or perhaps it's just about fleshing out the later pages because the
0: beginning is working really well thank you cece
1: all right now let's move on to your query letter carly will you read that for us
0: hi lovely ladies i'm submitting stumble on lies a dual timeline multiple point of view suspense thriller at ninety thousand words It's a mix between Adele Park's Lies, 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 Jane Harper's The Dry, and Stacey Willingham's All the Dangerous Things. In the summer of 1979, 14-year-old Penny Wiseman loves boys, surfing, and the pop band Sherbert. But her simple seaside life shatters the moment things seem too perfect. Mark Oak returns home to rebuild his pride after an accident forces him from a promising footy career. He will do anything for Penny, maybe even die. When treacherous surf sweeps Mark off rocks and out to sea, the once-close Wiseman and Oak families turn on each other. The carefree 70s die that day. Forty years later, Penny is unhappily married, suspicious of her husband, and hiding an awful secret. When she meets her daughter's boyfriend, Penny is plunged back into the what-ifs of 1979. What if Mark were still alive? What if she never let her guard down where her horrific attack occurred? What if she never married a narcissist? But all her questions lead to another unbearable assumption. Her husband may be responsible for the abduction of young women. When the next victim is her daughter, she has no one to trust, not even the police. Vincent Kalani believes his life is a lie. When his son falls in love in Australia, Vin agrees to help find the missing girlfriend, even if it means leaving his Hawaiian home where he's searching for answers. He meets Penny and it's deja vu, as if he's known her all his life, but that's impossible. The closer Penny gets to Vin, the more she's convinced he's Mark. But is it only a fantasy to protect her from the petrifying reality that her daughter may already be dead? Vin must help Penny unravel her husband's lies to get to the truth about the missing girls. It's a frantic, terrifying race against time, and Vin is used to time moving slowly. Will Penny's husband's biggest lie shake everyone's foundations because he's not the only one with secrets? What if the person who died is the only one who can save you? I'm Donna Monroe, an Australian indie author of fiction and nonfiction, a freelance writer and graphic designer. A previous novel, Beach Cottage Haven, was accepted into the Sunshine Coast Creative Alliance Manuscript Development Project. Though I have part-time work, writing is my career. My dream is to find an agent and be traditionally published.
1: Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. What was the word count on that and what did you think of it?
0: All right. This one clocked in at 418 words. Okay. So I'll start at the top here. The comps were in italics as well as the, the the original title is in italics as well. I would just put them in all caps instead of italics. So they really pop off the page. The thing that was in caps, which didn't need to be in caps was the characters names. This is a very synopsis thing. When we see the characters names, all in caps, those just need to be normal with uh, obviously the the first letter being capitalized we don't need the entire name being capitalized that's that's for synopses And, and even then you don't really have to do that in your synopsis but some people choose to do that okay so i think what i'm struggling with because i do find this incredibly interesting and right and i'm trying to process all of this in my brain is that these really feel like different stories this past story as a child and this adult story the child story being this accident that happens in the surf and then the adult story being missing daughter. Like, I'm not really sure how these are going to come together. And I think in the query letter, I might need a bit more of a lead in so that I can understand potentially how these two are going to combine. Because that part isn't especially clear to me at this point. That would really help me here. Because the other thing is... She says when she meets her daughter's boyfriend, Penny is plunged back into the what ifs. I'm like, does this really make her go back? Does her daughter having a boyfriend? Like, that's what takes her back. Um, it seems a little bit passive and coincidental, right? It's like, how come nothing else in her life made all of these things come to the surface? That was a bit of a question mark for me. There are some questions where I'm like, I think these could be statements. What if Marks were still alive? What if she didn't let her guard down? Was she never married a narcissist? Like, they're all pretty leading questions. I would probably just prefer those as statements. And now, again, coming back to this contemporary plot line of the, the missing girls. So I think what I'm most concerned about is that it reads to me like it has a really high ick factor. To me, abduction of young girls is either trafficking or sexual violence. And so when you say somebody's father is going to abduct her, that's a huge ick factor, right? Like, I think we're talking about incest potentially, which obviously huge factor. So I have a lot of question marks around just plausibility. Is this the actual intent of the author? Is this actually what the story is about? And and again, how this past and present storyline connects. It's all very interesting, especially the part where potentially there's some deja vu between vin and her missing boyfriend or you know we think the boyfriend died i guess in the surf accident but like maybe he resurfaces this vin guy like that part is interesting to me but the rest of it i think i need a little bit more clues in terms of sorting out the other thing i'm concerned about is it is 418 words so i'm like we don't really have any more r- words to add so how can we just do this more clearly That should be our main goal here. I think we can get there. It seems very interesting. I just need that integration a bit more clear.
1: Excellent, Carly,
0: thank you. And what happened in those opening pages? So we start with chapter one today is what it's called. Um, And we have a very short, it is called chapter one. It is a prologue, but it's basically Penny, our main character, on her doorstep talking to a policeman. And the policeman says, Mrs. James, I have some news. And she says, did she survive? So we know it's like a very intense moment of her child, something happening to her child. Then we jump to chapter two, 1979, in Mark's point of view. So this is the boyfriend, the summer love boyfriend. And we have this interaction between the two of them as teenagers, where they're just on the beach kind of enjoying each other's company. She's kind of looking at shells and like a little marine life kind of washing up. And all of a sudden this huge undertow riptide comes out of nowhere. It seemed to me like they kind of understood the tides, but like this was out of nowhere. And so The character in this scene, Mark, he rescues two children playing and gets them over to their mother, but he he is trying to rescue the girlfriend who was Penny. And Penny is kind of like standing on a rock and they form a human chain to try and rescue her. In his last acts, it seems that he is able to get her rescued. He gets swept out to sea and there's blood and he's kind of like, sharks are going to come for me kind of thing. And that is where it ends. And what did you think of the pages? So as everybody knows, I get on my high horse about prologues all the time. And this one isn't called a prologue, it is a prologue. But this is an example of a prologue where I think the actual prologue itself works because it is so short. It is half a page. So it's really just like a grounding thing that happens you know often in thrillers or mysteries or you know, crime novels where it's like, let's just plant a little bit of suspense. And work our way back to that moment. I think, like, I call it frame narrative sometimes, like, we're kind of framing, bookending the situation. I think this type of strategy works best in thrillers. So I think it can work here. The issue is, I find this slip back into 1979 and Mark's point of view so different in tone and style that all the goodwill we've created with this faux prologue feels a bit deflated because we're completely losing the energy of that present moment that said this is a very intense scene which you guys you know heard me describe right now about the the tide and losing his girlfriend you know he thinks he's gonna lose his girlfriend so like this huge moment of like water safety of shit going down is super dramatic and intense so i'm not sure whether that flip works but both scenes are very well done so again i think when things are done well the reader is going to go on a ride with you and so in that sense i do think it all works the way that this is written from based on what i've read so far is full of so much humanity in terms of not only the moment of like the mother being on the doorstep of has my child survived, but also Mark so distraught about trying to save his teen girlfriend. Like this, there's this moment that just like gutted me. They're kind of speaking to each other, but they can't hear each other because the waves, and they're kind of mouthing towards each other. And he says, stay, please. We'll get you. My voice is a pitch high, but for once I have no embarrassment or teenage angst. I'll get you. You know, it's this idea of like, his voice is doing this like squealy, like teenage boy thing, but like, he doesn't care because it's like, all he cares about is saving her. I don't know. I could just like picture that moment of like hearing a teenage boy's voice squeal like that and just like how intense that moment is. And so, as I said, the humanity here is so palpable and I felt it in, in every scene. You know, he, he says, I wish the, our parents came today, but I wanted to be alone with her. And this type of thing It was just really honest and sweet and it just felt so authentic to me there's a couple lines where i'm like i don't think this line is working that i made mention of but overall i think this is really interesting i just have no idea about how these two worlds are are coming back together and maybe that's enough curiosity for some people but i think i need a little bit more integration
1: wonderful carly thank you and now we'll review a third submission which we're both critiquing carly will you read us that query letter Dear Cece,
0: included are the first five pages of my 75,000-word literary novel, Redacted. My book is similar to Kate Elizabeth Russell's My Dark Vanessa and Lisa Tadeo's Animal. It might interest you based on your tenderness towards unhappy characters. 38-year-old Rachel Nelson lives in suburban New Jersey and works in the city for a company that connects big pharma with patients who take the drugs. They are agents to sick people, and ironically, Rachel doesn't feel well. She thinks her illness is connected to decisions she made when she was 14. Back then, in 1999, she had an inappropriate relationship with a coffee cart guy who works outside her fictionalized Newark middle school. He introduced her to drugs, to sex, and to his invisible world. That time in her life was sometimes dangerous, often thrilling, and Rachel recalls it both with pride and shame. In the present-day timeline, she's thinking about it a lot and seeking a karmic cause for her illness, but she won't find one. Rachel has multiple sclerosis, something that I have too, and of course, neither of us did a thing to bring it on. Redacted smashes to an end in the past when a girl is killed on Rachel's class trip to an amusement park. In the present day, she gets a proper diagnosis and returns to the place where she first met, the coffee cart guy. I graduated in a few weeks from Bennington College's MFA program. This past semester, I was selected as our only teaching fellow. I have a BA in creative writing from the University of Wisconsin. I'm a contributor to the Fly Fish Journal. And in 2022, my writing on fly fishing earned an honorable mention from the Traver Award. My work has been published by Flame Tree Press, Hobart, Rue Scribe, and elsewhere. My writing was supported by the Community of Writers in 2018. In this summer, I will attend the postgraduate conference at Vermont College of Fine Arts. Originally from New Jersey, I now live in Southern Vermont with my husband and two dogs. I spent many years on Wall Street working in human resources, but today I volunteer with formerly incarcerated women in my adopted home state. Thank you for looking at my first pages. I hope you'll want to keep reading. Sincerely, Sarah Zork. I'm so curious
1: to hear. What did you think, Carly?
0: All right, this one came in at 387 words. My first question around this one is... The New Jersey and the city part. So if the city is capitalized, like the capital T, city, capital C. I've only ever seen this t- when talked about in London, England, like the city, because the city is a borough. It's very specific, the city. And so I wondered why the city was capitalized. I mean, I assume we're talking about Manhattan. I don't know. I just, had to me for a teeny itty bitty bitty loop. So I was kind of curious, um, curious about that one. But I really like the hook here. The company that connects Big Pharma with their patients who take the drugs and then Ironically, our main character doesn't feel well. I really like this hook. I think I think this is this is quite interesting. There's a number of things though that I think are too vague, which is things like he introduces her to drugs, to sex, into his invisible world, or the coffee cart guy. Like this coffee cart guy, so vague. He clearly changes her life or trajectory of her life, and yet it's not even like what drugs. It's just like drugs. Um, like, you know, the coffee cart guy. I mean, if it is supposed to be a literary device that we are using for something I get it I guess but for the sake of a query letter I'm like we're just leaning really hard on this looseness and I think we really we need some we need some specifics here Cece what did you think
1: I had the same question about the city just just because the capitalization like if it were like in normal lower caps I again would have known that they were talking about New York and would have moved on the pages also have that so I thought that I think that's interesting I'm wondering why the author did this Fictionalized Newark Middle School kind of threw me off as well. Like, I don't think that we need to know that the school is fictionalized in the query letter, unless it's an imaginary school that she's imagining in her mind, which I'm sure is not the intent. And then you, you don't need it. But really, my big picture note is structurally, I think we need two arcs one for the present day timeline and one for the past, because we find out that there's a present day timeline in the plot paragraph towards the very end, actually. And so I think that that information, like dual timeline, should be in the first paragraph and that we need two arcs for the plot paragraph. Like what is the central conflict in the past? What is the central conflict in the present? And what is the major dramatic question in each? To that point, um, the last, I think the third paragraph, I'd say, which reads, redacted smashes to an end in the past when a girl is killed on Rachel's class trip to an amusement park. I'd reframe that because it's not specific to her. Like it's not specific to the protagonist. It also doesn't feel like a major dramatic question to me, but I don't know. Maybe you're giving away the ending. Like I'm not sure. And then the second line after that does the same thing, right? Like she gets a proper diagnosis and returns to the place where she first met the coffee cart guy. That's anticlimactic. That doesn't feel like a major dramatic question. So I almost wonder if that paragraph has to go. And then when you work on both arcs, leave us at the major dramatic question, because I think that that would be more impactful. And I should also say, this is a very
0: impressive author paragraph. I'm sure you would agree, Carly. Absolutely. Yes. And congratulations on your MFA. That is quite an accomplishment.
1: All right. So I will summarize what happened in the opening pages. Chapter one is about her friend's death. It's during a field trip. No one spoke about it on the bus on the right home after the tragedy life went on this was 25 years ago and then chapter two the protagonist has mono as a child This is before the friend died. And after having mono, as she's finally recovered and good to go to school again, her dad dies. And then she pictures her dad in like interesting scenarios and like alternative lives that he could have had and deals with her dad's friends. And then chapter three, she talks to, she tells us about her condo. Like that's pretty much what happens. We get a lot of chapters in, in only five pages. Yeah. And Carly, what did you think of the execution?
0: All right, so I will start with chapter one. So, we, as Cece said, we start with this child who has died basically on the trip. And so I think what I'm tr- what I'm struggling with with these pages is trying to figure out when the author is intentionally being vague or when it's just kind of happening and and maybe what the purpose is in terms of the literary device, right? Because with literary fiction, everything should be so incredibly intentional, every word choice, every sentence choice, every paragraph, little like everything, right? And not to say that it isn't in commercial fiction, but the intentionality is just so much a part of that craft. And so I'm so curious about why the author chooses everything, right? Because as, as authors, you guys get to choose anything, right? This is literally your canvas. And so every choice is intentional. And so they say, I think it was somewhere near the center of New Jersey. We lived in Newark. The fact that this character doesn't know where Thunder Park was is so surprising to me it closed but she says most important place in the world and then you can't remember where the most important place in the world is even if you were a child i and you're in eighth grade i don't know i feel like so like when i grew up there was this water park you know like half hour from us and it did close you know as many things do over the years right but like i will never forget every time you drive by that empty space where the water park used to be it's just like in your eighth grade mind it will always be there so i just found that a little bit hard to believe the other thing I found hard to believe is that there is no reaction to the death. So she's saying nobody talked about it, but she doesn't ever say how she felt about that. Like, there's no reaction. Did she see it? Was she traumatized? Was she part of the reason that it happened? Like, I have literally have no idea about what her relationship is to the death. It's so dissociative. And that's why I'm trying to figure again, is it intentionally dissociative or not? That's something that's on my mind quite a bit with these pages. There's a lot of lines that are really, really well done, you know, for literary fiction. I'll give you an example here about the mono. Uh, But I'd lost a few pounds having mono and my mother was jealous. She wanted what I had. I saw her drink from my glass more than once. I loved that, right? So specific, so intentional, the way that the daughters observe their mother's behavior around weight is just so interesting and specific to me, and and that's something we're like I believe that right that I believe so I think that was that was really well done. But other than that, I'm just trying to figure out again this this dissociativeness right and and this the mental illness right. And so she said at one point, I believe I had to be careful when talking about his death, the dad, because there was a camera in our bathroom mirror and microphones in our ceiling, wires planted by the FBI in our kitchen. So she's very aware, says so 14-year-old Rachel Nelson knows more than she's saying. I don't know. It just it's It's simultaneously so self-aware and so dissociative that I was really having a hard time figuring out how I felt about these pages because I was doing this dance.
1: Yeah, I'll echo that. And I'll add that structurally, I would have liked to see the first chapter with the present day timeline, like a timestamp, and then the second chapter with the past, just to make it super duper clear, especially because the first chapter, which is technically present, she is thinking about her friend's death in the past. So I'm not even sure that's the right place to start. The dissociative element um, with bouts of self-awareness that I think we are so beautiful, was present throughout. Um, when, when her friend died, again, we didn't know. If this person was actually even her friend or just a classmate, we didn't know what it meant to her. And yet there's a really cool curiosity seed on, on on the first page, really, that said on the bus ride back, our teachers didn't speak and neither did we. I always found that suspicious that nobody was suspicious. Nobody, at least on my bus, asked us what we'd seen. And she questions why that would be. And that's interesting and intelligent. And I loved getting access to her psyche. And then that's not leveraged. And I'm like, no, no. At the end of chapter one, my note was, no, go back to the suspicion. Like, like that is so cool. I want to know more about that. And when, when her dad dies, like it's a social worker who tells her with her mom there. Like, why? Like, why is her mom not the one to tell her, right? Like, Carly, you said a line I don't know enough about her relationship with, and you were talking about the friend, and that that's in my notes. It's, I, I'm saying, I don't know anything about her relationships, period. And relationships are essential to how we see ourselves in the world, not just our relationship with our dad, this classmate in school, our mom, but also what that concrete relationship represents in terms of our relationships with abstract elements. So her relationship with weight will probably be tied to her relationship with her mom. You know, maybe her relationship with dangerous things, maybe like amusement parks or rides, because I don't know how this how this child died, will be forever associated with that classmate. Sometimes the connection isn't so direct, but more to the point, we need we need more information, and I don't mean in an info dumpy way, which is not not a problem that you have here at all. Um, to to the writer, um, I hope you're listening. The writing is really polished, like really polished. Clearly, you have a talent. I just think that you're figuring out the story and and kudos to you because this is how stories are written. But I was curious. And in chapter three, even though there were no deaths, she does mention buying an apartment. And like buying an apartment is suggests financial means, right? Like really impressive financial means, like all alone. So again, I'm curious about that too. So I just wanted more. I wanted to understand her deeper roles. I wanted more access to her psyche. Wanting more is a compliment. Please know that. You're, you're figuring this out and I hope you get there because this is really interesting.
0: All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, thank you to the authors who supply your words to us. It never ceases to amaze me the vulnerability that you share with us and that you entrust us with your work. We, we deeply appreciate it on such a human level. So thank you. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group
2: members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information And to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the author of novels Waiting for a Start to Fall and Mitzi Bites and editor of the M-Word Conversations About Motherhood. A National Magazine Award-nominated essayist and editor of Canadian Books' website 49thShelf.com, she writes about books and reading at her longtime blog, Pickle Me This. She lives in Toronto with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome back Kerry Clare. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you back. And for our listeners today, we're talking about Kerry's latest novel, Asking for a Friend. Now, I could read the blurb copy for our listeners so that they know what's happening, but we much prefer to hear your take on the story, Kerry.
3: I wanted to write a story in which friendship is one of the true loves of women's lives. And so that's what this book is about. It takes place across decades following friends from their early 20s into their 40s as their lives change in all kinds of ways that are parallel and ways that are very, very divergent. And I just wanted to explore the love story of Friendship.
2: And you absolutely did this. This was a love letter to sisterhood, to friendship. It just gave me all the feels. It was, and it's just so true to life. It gave me goosebumps. I I absolutely adored it. Now, something I want to get into is, so we say on the podcast that you need to circle the building when you begin a novel. There are so many different ways to start a novel. And before you put pen to paper, the possibilities are endless. And then you circle the building and you either decide to come in through the front door, the fire escape, the chimney, whatever the case may be is but the same is very true when it comes to picking your characters because once you commit to characters and once you begin writing it feels like they are true and they are inevitable but before you decide who those characters are you could have picked any characters in the world now Jess and Clara are just so singular they felt so incredibly real to me and That is how characters feel at the end of a novel, once you as the author have spent so much time with them, developing them, getting to know them, making them fully rounded. But can you explain to our readers how you approached the choice of who Jess and Clara would be at the beginning of the novel? Why them? Why not the thousands of other characters you could have chosen in this instance?
3: I don't remember making a choice, actually. They were themselves from the start I think I was really interested in writing about a character who was naive and one who was a little bit worldly. And yeah, I don't remember making a choice. They sort of arrived. And what I love about the book is that they take turns with those dynamics being the strong one and the smart one and the one who's like learning and wanting and growing and, and they, they they go back and forth. And I think a lot of friendships are like that, that dynamic is always changing. And so I think, yeah, the dynamic of, of Jess being a little bit younger not as worldly, and and Clara knowing everything and having all the answers. That was how it began. But I didn't really get to know them until later. I had a really wonderful edit near the end where emotions just got really injected into the story thanks to the questions my editor was asking about how Jess was feeling, how Clara was feeling. I wasn't writing with that in mind so much and they're, you know, getting in touch with their emotions. And so I really got to know them at that stage. I think I was really fascinated also by the dynamic of friction in female friendships. And I was a little bit too fascinated with that. They were rubbing up against each other a lot in the book. And and another great editorial suggestion I was given was, why are these two friends at all? I had to go back and, and really deepen their connection and make sure that it wasn't just tensions and difficulty and and give them also like real moments of seeing each other and knowing each other. One way I got to know Clara is through her room. The spaces in this book are really important. And I was writing about Clara's room in a university dorm, and she brought all this stuff from home and postcards from faraway places. And so showing her space really gave me a real sense of her character. And I think Jess is also awed by this person who's so defined. And so I my experience was sort of similar to Jess's. I saw this space and I knew who Clara was because it was like nobody else's.
2: There's so much about this that, that I want to unpack that's amazing because, yes, setting is more than backdrop setting defines character in so many instances how we choose to decorate our spaces our homes whether we don't hang anything up on the wall because we feel like where we are in our lives when the space is temporary or whether we make it our own that tells us so much about ourselves about these characters so that's incredibly true so for our listeners always picture you know your character's environment why they've made it that way what that says about them and where they are in their lives that's really true and I love, Kerry, what you said about your editor saying scale back on the conflict and tension because something that we sing these days in fiction is straight out the gate. We need conflict. We need tension. We need things happening on the page, et cetera. And a story like this proves that that's not true that you can have a quieter story. I mean, there's so much happening in these women's lives. It's not to say that there isn't a lot happening, but it's quieter on a whole different level. And that allows you to up the emotionality and the character development and really get to know these characters more. I mean, was that freeing in a certain way that you were able to do that?
3: It's what my instinct as a writer is to do, and so I feel really fortunate to have connected with an editor who saw the promise in my project, and and who kind of knows what I'm about. Because yeah, I think a lot of what agents and editors are looking for isn't quiet, and so it, it, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had someone see the possibility in this project and and help me make it work. I don't know if I could write a different kind of novel. I think. Like The the emotional level is where it all happens for me. Plot is something that I'm continuing to, you know, I've gotten better at and I'm interested in learning more about, but it's the human connection. That's where the real action happens in my books.
2: Very much so. And there's also a lot of social commentary. And I know that this comes from, you know, things that you've experienced in your own life, et cetera, that we see coming to the page in in what you write about. So can you speak a bit about how you as an author take something that you are very passionate about in your own life, the kind of thing I say on the podcast that makes you wave a turkey drumstick around at family members at Thanksgiving, the kind of thing that you you feel really strongly about, that you're able to bring to your writing in a way that doesn't feel like the reader is being lectured or they kind of being, you know, given a soapbox speech, but that feels real and that makes your readers read it and connect and go, yes, Kerry, I've been there. I feel this. I feel like you are actually reaching out your hand through the page and grabbing my hand and you are squeezing it.
3: So what you're talking about is that I keep writing about reproductive justice in everything I do. It's reproductive justice that I'm talking about, but I kind of went into weaving that into my story backwards. It, It wasn't there at the beginning. Now, this story is very much about the way that the dynamics of not motherhood per se, but just like Being a person with a uterus, right? Like whether you have children or don't, I'm so interested in the way that that affects dynamics of a friendship. And I know that, you know, the divide between women who have children and women who don't is something we hear a lot about. But like with women who have children, there's just as many divides. And, you know, seeing friends who have children when maybe you want some and you're struggling with fertility, that's brutal. Having friends who have children at the same time as you, but the choices they make are very, very different. It's, just there's never ending possibility for stories in in these dynamics. And so I wanted to explore the way that parallel experiences as otherwise affect women's friendship. And so abortion was always part of that. The story begins with an accidental pregnancy and she has an abortion and she sort of gets, this is Jess and she's mentored by her friend who's sort of been through that before and can guide her, which is often the way it is. Heidi Julevitz, in her book, The Folded Clock, talks about abortion as women's work, the way that, you know, mothers and sisters and friends counsel each other through the experience. And of course, not only women have abortions, but I think that's very, very true. It's, It's a very gendered thing, being there for somebody, you know, like, people's boyfriends aren't the ones that counsel them through. So I wanted to write about that in this book. So it was sort of there from the beginning. But the the more political take on it wasn't there from the beginning. I started writing this book in 2015. That's part of the reason. And in 2015, I had a different perspective on where we were in terms of reproductive rights. So I felt like I didn't need to spell everything out. I was finishing a draft of this novel 1 year ago in June of 2022 which is when Roe versus Wade was overturned in America and that was devastating for me as somebody who you know my whole life hinges on the freedom that came when I was able to end a pregnancy I didn't want a long time ago the fact that other people wouldn't have that freedom is just devastating i can't imagine what my life would be if if i was in that situation now and so as I was finishing that draft and thinking about how to end my book, I knew that that's what this book was all about all along. I didn't know it in the beginning. I didn't set out thinking, I want to write this book that is a, you know, a, a political rallying call. I That wasn't my intention. But by the end, I knew that it had to be about that. I think, you know, being a woman, you know, in the era that I'm writing from the 1990s to, you know, 20, the end of the 20 teens that that has to be part of the story. So I think that's maybe why it works, because it wasn't what I was setting out to do from the outset, but it just automatically had to be part of the story. And I imagine, you know, in your own writing, when you're writing about South Africa, right, like, you don't have to be Writing a novel about about racism and apartheid, but it's just there it's part of the setting, and you have to honor that and and pay attention to it and I think it serves my narrative in in a in a way I'm really grateful for and I'm glad I have a
2: platform to tell these
3: stories I believe in
2: yeah a hundred percent and something you know that you're talking about as you talk about your writing is this layering I see coming through in the work in that you begin a work and It's only at the end that you understand the emotionality of the characters. And so you go back and when you do an edit, you layer in all of that emotionality. And when you get to the end, you understand what the work's about. So you go back and you layer that in. And that's how I edit as well. You know, I don't try and edit everything at once. Each time I go back, I discover something new. And that's what I focus on as I edit. So is, is that the same with your process?
3: It sure is. And my favorite place where that plays out is with dialogue. The dialogue in my early drafts is awful. And it's small talk and it's conversation that any two people could be having, but I don't know the people well enough to know the specifics of their conversations, particularly when we're speaking with our friends, we don't speak in generalities, right? Like it's, it's specific what we, we talk about. And so once I know my characters well enough, and it's one of the most exciting parts of the process for me, is going back and turning those banal small talk lines into the kind of conversation that only these two characters would have. And near the end of my novel, Clara, they're, so they're in their thirties now, they have they have small kids, and Jess has Clara come to visit her in her summer home, and this was a very late addition where Brett Kavanaugh has just been nominated to the Supreme Court and they're unloading luggage from the car and Jess is bringing them in and she's like, so there's there's this new guy on the Supreme Court and and that's what they're talking about. Like, Because this is something that they care about. And, and I love that dialogue now. It shows so much about who they are and where they are. But that couldn't have been there at the very beginning. There had to be a lot of, you know, a lot of placeholder dialogue there in the
2: meantime. Yeah, and and for our listeners as well, you know that's such a good point. But also remember that each character will speak differently. You know, some characters will make short declarative statements. Some characters kind of pontificate. Other characters are more lyrical. They ramble, etc. So these are also things you need to pay attention to when you're writing dialogue to make sure that your characters sound different from each other. And that's something that Kerry has done masterfully here as well. Time for two more questions, Kerry. One is: It is incredibly difficult to write a story, a novel that spans two decades. I know that because my First novel was supposed to span four decades and it got rejected by so many editors who said look we like it but you've been way too ambitious with the time and so it went from four decades to a year and three months. So let's talk about for our listeners out there who are writing these kinds of novels that span a long period of time. What advice do you have for them in terms of what moments do you choose to zoom in on and what moments do you say okay we can just Make it clear that years have passed between this happening and this happening.
3: Well, my first piece of advice would be to take your time. My other two published novels, I wrote first drafts in really short bursts, and they were created really quickly. This book, you know, I've been writing it for eight years, and I think the largeness of the canvas is is why I had to do that. So I think take your time with these big stories, and I guess just think about the rhythm, right? It's a question of rhythm, what to include in the story, what beats to, you know, to go in heavy on and which ones can be light. I, I also went through a period of writing, like back and forth letters that that were filling time where the characters weren't necessarily as they were far apart in geography. And that those didn't make it into the novel in the end. But I think it was important for me to figure out what was happening in, in the offbeats. I'm thinking too, that in women's lives, like the, the time in, in your early 20s is so eventful that it's beat, 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 beat. And then it gets a little bit slower, right? Because that's the way that, that life goes if you're an ordinary person who, and the characters I'm writing about are. So, yeah, paying attention to the, to the pace of life and change was important to me and i guess having some distance between in my characters lives then they could catch up with each other right they meet again after after years so that allowed me to to not have to you know include everything in the story
2: i love all of that and what made a lot of sense is that while each of them were having children dealing with children you know the, the focus would move away from the friendship towards the family. And that's something that's so true to life. Because, you know, when you're when you're young and you have these friends, your friends are everything to you. And then you get married and there's a bit of distance. And then you have children and your focus naturally goes to your children. And your children begin to grow up and become a bit more manageable. And you're able to focus a bit more on your friends. So there's a natural ebb and flow that was very, very evident in this novel. It portrayed real life perfectly this coming together and this kind of you know breaking apart and coming together again very much tidal that that was expressed very very well in the novel so these are things that I think our listeners as well should pay attention to what are the natural parts of life where things get really busy and when do things slow down and when are people able to take a breath and regroup you know in terms of pacing one last question Kerry is you begin with a kind of once upon a time fairy tale prologue and Jess as well, her occupation is, you know, it, it's got to do with fairy tales and things like that as well. Was that something that was in an early draft? Was it always there or was it something that was an evolution that came later in terms of the layering?
3: That always was part of the story. The beginning of this story was... Always was. The beginning is every time Jess was pregnant, Clara was the first to know. And that was the first thing I wrote. And it's still the first line. And yeah, the fairy tale element was part of it. I think I was interested in how little range there was in how women are portrayed in folktales. I mean, folktales aren't really about range anyway, but there's very few fairy tales where there's more than one woman. And that was interesting to me. And so I wanted to sort of play with the idea, old stories about, about women and and do something a little bit different. I, I want there to be more stories about friendship. I want that to be kind of baked into our culture and our folklore. And so I was, I wanted to play with that and, and use fairy tales as sort of a point where I could jump off and, and do different things with the stories we tell. And so, yeah, that always was part of it. It's so long ago now that, I yeah, it, it all seemed that it was just like that from the beginning. And, and I deepened it as I went because I think it, it added really interesting texture to the stories. And, yeah, it's one of my favorite things about it. I was also reading Lauren Groff's The Furies when I was writing this book and my book is very different but I wanted to do something that sort of had an epic scope and and that kind of sweep and so that that was an inspiration too with this with this book.
2: Yeah and I loved how you deepened the fairy tales in terms of this is the sort of polished shiny version children get today but this was the original fairy tale and this was bloody dark and it was bloody scary and this is how it used to be you know so so I really enjoyed that as well. Kerry it's been so lovely chatting with you I absolutely love the book for our listeners we are putting asking for a friend on our bookshop.org affiliate page if you get it there you're supporting an independent bookstore and you're supporting Kerry and you're supporting the podcast at the same time. Kerry, before we say goodbye is there anything happening on your side that you would like to promote uh, anything, any courses you've got coming up, any services you've got coming up that you would like our listeners to know about?
3: Um, well, I do have exciting events for my book coming this fall. There are tickets still available for the Book Drunkard Festival in Uxbridge, Ontario, with the amazing Blue Hair and Books. So I hope you'll come and I'll be in conversation with Marissa Stapley, if you're local. Uh, I also do manuscript evaluations and my books will soon be opening up for next year. So yeah, keep that in mind. If you want to take your book to the next level.
2: Amazing. I highly, highly recommend Kerry. So for those of you who reach out and do ask about that, go to Kerry's website and take a look there and definitely don't ever miss an Uxbridge Blue Heron event. If you can help it, they're always phenomenal. Thank you, Kerry. We look forward to having you again soon. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
0: Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, the author's publishing playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues. But for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. Is for career-driven writers aspiring and published who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8pm via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is